welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My name is Dave, and I'm a sexaholic, a happy sexaholic, and my sobriety date is November 23rd, 1990. Hi, Dave. Welcome to this meeting. Will you please join me in a moment of silence, followed by the third step prayer? Thank you. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And the title for this program is The Miracle of Recovery. How my life has changed. We have three panelists. Let's introduce the panelists first. As I said, my name is Dave and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, I'm Gene and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Gene. I'm Sylvia. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic from Oklahoma. My sobriety date's May 10th, 1983. For that, I am never sufficiently grateful. Hi, Sylvia. June again, my sobriety date is uh, October 28th, 1995, and I'm from Los Angeles. And I'm Dave T. from Oklahoma. We stacked the deck from Oklahoma on this panel. Uh, well, I will start the sharing, the miracle of recovery, how my life has changed. And in order for you to see how it's changed, I need to tell you a little bit about what it was like before. Before my entire life, I felt out of place. I felt alone. The problem is me. Um, I was in fantasy most of the time. It was cowboy fantasy or movie fantasy or... Uh, Tarzan fantasy, but it was fantasy. I was always, I was the daydreamer. Lots of notes to home from school about David and his daydreaming. I never wanted to be where I was. I always wanted to be someplace else. I was surrounded by grandmothers and great aunts and great great aunts and great 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 aunts. Uh, no grandfathers, no great uncles. Uh, I was loved. Uh, my parents did the best they could with what they had, but um, they had some needs of their own that they needed to fill, and sometimes that overlapped with what my needs were or weren't. Uh, early on, probably seven or eight, I was uh, sexually molested by an, a neighbor man, and... Uh, 
that continued. Um, I went from a victim to a volunteer. Uh, in fact, when I got my driver's license, we by then we had moved, and uh, I drove back to my abuser. Uh, that and uh, molestation by an older brother and some other things uh, introduced me to sex, introduced me to my best friend. If I needed to escape, I had masturbation. That was my best friend. And all the way through junior high, high school, that was my friend. Um, I didn't date. Uh, I uh, didn't think I was worthy of anybody. And all of the people that I saw, the girls I saw, were better than I. And they were important. And they came from good families. And I was just me. So, um, um I did go to the junior-senior prom as a junior and took uh, a girl who uh, probably wouldn't have had a date if I hadn't asked her. Uh, The senior prom, the same thing. Uh, Dated a very little bit at the end of uh, high school. And um, uh, was um, experimentally sexual with uh, a couple of my dates, but... uh, um, then would have to masturbate afterwards because that was that was what uh, my escape. Um, finally, did marry. I I didn't date. I wife shopped, um, and um, found a, a met a uh, young woman. Uh, I met her on Friday evening, and by Sunday afternoon, we decided that we were the perfect couple and that we should get married. And uh was about nine months later before we were married, but uh, we were married. By then, I was having anonymous sex with men. My fantasies were with men, but I thought that this marriage would take care of everything because that's the way it happens. Um, and um, we um, had one sexual experience before uh, uh, marriage, and it was okay, but... Uh, it wasn't as good as my best friend. And uh, very soon after marriage, I was back to masturbating. I was back to fantasy. Uh, it seemed that there was uh, always a third person in the marriage bed. My, my wife, myself, and my fantasy partner. Uh, we were never alone. Things progressed from uh, anonymous sex, bestiality, um, lots of pornography. Uh, I didn't spend very much on my pornography because I'm basically a very cheap person uh, and I would look for a bargain um, and then use the pornography, throw it away, uh, maybe out at a rest area on the highway or something, and then uh, leave it and drive down the road and make a U-turn and come back and go through the trash and get it out. And uh, um, this progressed for a number of years. Uh, I kept going over boundaries that, uh, well, I'll never do that and I'll never do that and I'll never do that, but uh, kept doing things. Um, my marriage ended in divorce. Uh, of course, it was my wife's fault because she had uh, um, she was engaged when we got divorced. Uh, and, and that was her fault and, and everything, but I was emotionally vacant from the marriage for, for many years. Uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I was not there for her. Uh, and, uh, 
By the time, uh, by the time I was ready for this program, I had a bank account. I had a house that I was buying. I had some numerous acquaintances. I had a church that I was active in. Uh, I had a car with air conditioning finally. And uh, I was hanging on by my bare fingernails. I couldn't, I couldn't see that life could get any better than it was, and it was the pits. And I thought, if this is all there is, if any single bad thing happens, I'm going to have to kill myself. Because this is the pits. And, uh, but I didn't know how to kill myself. It was too messy. And, uh, I couldn't figure out a good way to kill myself. And somehow, from some insight from God, there was a little message that, well, maybe I could try counseling. We tried marriage counseling once, and I was so vague and never said a thing because nothing was my fault in the marriage. So I didn't open up about anything. But this time I went to a counselor, and I spilled my guts. I told every single thing, as I thought it was. Um, in, in some moment of clarity, I dumped everything. Things that I had never said for 50 years. And... Um, said that I didn't know whether I was undersexed or oversexed, whether I was, whether it was an orientation problem or what, but I knew that I had a problem. And I said, and I've got another problem. I don't know, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with that, but I've got a church, I've got friends, I've got children, adult children, and, you know, I could move to Alaska and never see any of them again and not care. Didn't know that those two were related. And the therapist gave me the book out of the shadows to read. And I took it home and I started reading it. And I got about halfway through and I just sat there and bawled. Just sat there and cried because all of a sudden there was somebody else who was like me. There were other people who were like me. I wasn't the only one. I thought in all of that all that porn that I was reading, that all those people were having fun doing that stuff, and I was the only one that wasn't having fun doing it. I was just using it. And I found out that I wasn't the only one, and I found Sexaholics Anonymous. I did have one um, um, wrong number. I left my name and asked about the group, and uh, the person called back and says, I don't know anything about a 12-step group, uh, but finally found the right number and called, and they called me back and told me about a meeting. My first meeting was November 23rd, 1990, the day after Thanksgiving. And, of course, I had to act out before I went to the meeting, getting ready for the meeting. But I went to the meeting. And there was a woman there, and she had, I think, seven years sobriety or something. It was some ridiculous number. And and there was a, an old man there who had, like, I don't know, five years of sobriety. That was that was ridiculous. But both of them were married, and, and I'm not married, so, you know. But there was this young man there who had 30 days of sobriety. 30 days! I thought, Wow! 30 days he's not had sex with anybody or masturbated or anything. This is awesome. And so 
I said, I want that. That meeting was a Friday night. I lived about 110 miles from the meeting. The next meeting was Saturday morning. I drove home. I didn't have to stop at a rest area and act out on my way home. I didn't have to act out in the car going 80 miles an hour. I didn't have to act out when I got home. The next morning when I showered ready to come to the, the meeting, I didn't have to act out. I came back to that meeting and I was sober. Saturday morning I was sober from Friday night. And I had even thought about sex. I mean, you know, I'd had that word pop into my mind. Before, if that word popped into my mind, I had to act out. I mean, that's all I was to it. Either now or I had to put it off until I had time to act out, which I always made time. But I thought about it. And I didn't have to act out on it. The next meeting wasn't until Tuesday. And I was sober then. Now between Saturday and Tuesday, I cleaned out the house. I threw out everything that was sexual. I threw out some clothes. I threw out every bit of cologne. From that time till now, I don't need to smell wonderful or smell like a cowboy or smell like a... Um, you know, this or that or something else, all I have to do is smell clean. Because I use colognes as part of my grooming. Um, from that time, from, from that Saturday, whenever I would walk into a public restroom, I'd take my glasses off so I couldn't read the walls. I started cleaning up my act and I got rid of everything I thought once in a while, I'd find something and then have to throw it away later. Um, but I started coming to the meetings, and I started connecting. I was home. It was wonderful. So that's what it was like then. What's it like now? About five years ago, I looked around and I said, You know, I've got a house. I've got a bank account. I've got friends. And it can't get any better than this. And you know, it keeps getting better. Every year I think it can't get any better than this. And it keeps getting better. I don't have a list of the promises with me. But every single one of those promises is coming true. I'm losing my fear of things. I used to be afraid of dogs. Afraid enough that I would walk around the block. I wouldn't go places because they had dogs. I was afraid of it. I'm not afraid of dogs now. There were things that I didn't like. I like almost everything now. Foods that I couldn't stand. I mean, they're terrible, awful. And I can enjoy them now. Uh, fear of economic insecurity. I had, uh, I've, I finally decided that since I am retirement age that, uh, I needed to have some money set aside and I, I have been saving and setting some aside and, and I picked a dollar amount that I needed to have and I reached that dollar amount and thought, okay, alright God, I'm all set now. Anything above that I can spend. I don't have to save anymore. I'm all set. I can spend the rest of my excess money or do whatever I want to with my excess money from now on. 
So immediately, the NASDAQ falls. You know, I got into the NASDAQ because everybody was making money on it, and so I got into the NASDAQ the next day. It fell. And then the rest of the stock market kind of went with it. And so this amount of money that I said was the exact amount of money I needed has dwindled by about 20%. And do you know what? I'm not worried. It'll go back up or it won't. I'll be okay. I love to travel. God knows that it would not be good if I were rich. So he allows me to travel as part of business, as part of, of uh, some mission trips, because my walk with him, my, my understanding of who my higher power is, has grown and developed to the point that I'm willing to share that aspect of my life too. So I'm able to travel around the world to obscure places. I spent seven weeks in Mongolia this summer. Seven weeks in Mongolia, riding a camel, the two-hump kind, riding the little Mongolian horses, riding in a jeep across the steppes, having the clutch plate go out on the jeep in the middle of the Mongolian steppes, and my driver and his helper go walking to find a new clutch plate. Walking. They didn't even walk on the dirt track. They walked perpendicular to the dirt track to go find a horse to go get a clutch plate. While they were gone, three drunks came along and decided that uh, we should buy them a bottle since I was a foreigner and had all this money. And then they showed their gun to, to prove that we should buy them a bottle. And you know what? I, all of that time, I wasn't happy, happy. But I wasn't scared to death. I wasn't, I wasn't delirious to say, oh God, whatever. I took some precautions and I followed what my translator said. I did some things, but, uh, I wasn't scared to death. I knew that what was happening was happening for a reason. Last year I was stuck in the middle of a dirt road in the mountains on the Navajo, Navajo Reservation, five o'clock at night, mud, the car is hanging over the edge of a cliff. And about five in the morning, I got out. The road froze, they could get a wrecker up. Now, all this time, I wasn't deliriously happy and saying, oh God, whatever. I was a little concerned. As one group came along and I saw that they were uh, uh, not in a friendly condition, I began to wonder, I wonder what it's like to be clubbed or hit. Hmm, I may find out. Everything worked out fine. I, I now... Um, I, I had to go to meetings when I first started. I had to go to four or five meetings a week. Now, I don't have to go to any meetings. I'm not cured, but I don't have to go to any meetings because I want to go to a couple of meetings a week. In fact, I want to go to an extra one every once in a while. And, you know, I want to go to so many meetings that there aren't any left that I have to go to. 
See, I'm only driving about 90 miles to get to a meeting now, and on my way I get to listen to the news on the radio. Nice, relaxing time in the car. It's My car is more comfortable than my easy chair, so I'm really comfortable as I'm driving to the meeting. I'm driving in the turnpike, 85 miles, um, 75 miles an hour. Uh, and I really am, I'm, I'm setting my speed, my, my, my speed uh, thing on the speed limit now. That really was a slip of the tongue, because I am going the speed limit now. Anyway, I get, I get an hour or so of nice news, comfortable seat. I go and I sit down with friends and I share where I am and I get to find out where they are. I read some good literature and get some spiritual insights from it. And then after we share, we go out to eat. Now, I love to eat, and I love to eat with friends. So we go out and eat, and we visit, and we talk about this, and we talk about that. And then I get back in my easy chair, which happens to be in my car, and I drive home, and I spend an hour or so listening to classical music, or sometimes listening to silence. Sometimes I sing praise songs. I drive with one hand raised. I don't raise both hands. But I sing in praise. Or sometimes I'm just quiet. Life is so good. Um, I think I'll stop there. And I'll let one of our other speakers speak. Jean? Would you like to share some? Thank you. Good morning. My name is Gene. I'm a sexaholic. No, I wouldn't like to share. I was sitting there thinking, boy, this is good. Now, when he's through, maybe I can get this lady to share next. <laughs> and then I can just sit here and there will only be five or ten minutes left. My story is almost parallel to the story you just heard. We don't know each other, yet we do. And I know you, and you know me. I'm just looking in a mirror today, looking at all of you, every one of you. Oh, our stories are a little different. Our friend Dave just mentioned fantasy. And he said, cowboys? And he said, Tarzan. When I was ten years old, I started collecting the Tarzan books. By the time I was fifteen, I had every book that Edgar Rice Burroughs ever wrote. It was amazing. Talking Tarzan, Simba the Elephant, you know, all, all the adventures in Africa. At ten years old, as I learned to masturbate and found my best friend, same thing. And I was in Africa, I was with Tarzan, I was in the jungle, I was a hero. I was in the bathroom masturbating. You know, that's where my story begins, and i got to tell you, that's probably where my story ends before I came into S.A., I have spent more time in bathrooms masturbating 
and in the car, masturbating, and in public places, and on side streets, and in alleys. What a wonderful hobby. Where, where else, I love the expression, what a hobby. Where else do you leave at three in the morning to go have fun? <laughs> uh, hey, I was a nutty little kid, really nutty. At 10 years old, I discovered masturbation. I thought, wow, this is just wonderful. I don't know why I liked it so much. There was nothing really radically wrong with my life. My dad was a very happy alcoholic, and he sang and was funny and told stories and was drunk all the time, but he was a happy alcoholic. I wasn't abused in any way. I can't remember a neighbor ever touching me. I, you know, Nobody ever hurt me. We had food on the table. Uh, everything was good. But for some reason, I got stupid with my body right away. I like to put rubber bands around my penis to see how long it would take before it would turn blue. When it turned blue, I took them off. I like to poke things up my rear end just for the feeling. When I was 15, I poked an ice pick up to make myself bleed to see how it would feel if I were a girl and had a period. I bled and I passed out. And that was my first trip to the hospital. Of course, I had swallowed a chicken bone. You've got to tell your parents something. And you can't very well tell them what you really did. Because that was pretty dumb. Right? An ice pick? Let, let me see how bleeding feels. I'm going to make my story very quick because it's not that interesting. It's a very low-level bottom story. Uh, I got married at 19. I was unfaithful to my wife the second week. I was a predator. I hustled the grocery stores, the drug stores, the neighbors, uh, where I went to college, at night school, where I worked. I constantly picked up women. I uh, became very, very good at picking up women and had affairs with roughly 200 women over the next 12 years. Uh, I was so charming. I was so handsome. I was so debonair. Reality, I knew how to find sexaholic women. <laughs> Had nothing to do with me. I was just pretty good at spotting women who were sexaholics. Boy, I was clever. And I got tired. I got bored because it was one after the other after the other. And my friends said, boy, what a wonderful guy you are. I boasted about it. I was proud of it. It was my hobby. What they didn't know is I masturbated all the time anyway. I was married. I had many, 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 many girlfriends, and I masturbated besides. At age 32, being bored with all the women, I switched to men. I found out it was an easier thing. It didn't cost any money. They were more willing. And you didn't have to be nice to them. You didn't have to bring them flowers. You didn't have to do anything. All you had to do was say, let's go. And boy, you had all the partners you wanted. Two at a time, four at a time. It, you know, you, and I discovered the gay bar. And being a piano player, I was the hit of the gay bar. It was just so much fun. And then I discovered the bathhouse where it was strictly anonymous and um, I could spend 
hours and hours. And so I did for about 15 years, spent hours and hours. I would go to work, put on my suit, my tie, and get my briefcase, and go to work, and at 10 o'clock, leave work and go to the bathhouse and stay until roughly 2, 3, 4 in the afternoon, come back to work, clean up my little desk, go home, have dinner with the wife, play with the kids, have a wonderful time. And I do that once a month, and then once a week, and then three times a week. And then that got boring, and I quit having sex with men. Not out of any virtue, not out of any anything else than I was bored with it. It just wasn't fun anymore. Now, God must have been with me because AIDS came in about two years later after I had quit. I said, wow, I just missed AIDS. I was very lucky because I was completely living in the gutter, completely living in the cesspool. This was not the height of my acting out. Although I was about then 45 years old and now had many, many years of being a predator with women and then another 12, 15 years of promiscuous sex with men, I was just starting my hard times acting out. That was only the beginning. You mean it got worse from there? i got to tell you people, it got so much worse I couldn't believe it. I was through with men, I was too old to be charming and debonair with women, and uh, at mid-40s, it wasn't that easy to go out and pick up the girls in the market or on the street. I started straight, intensive masturbation. How intensive? I ended up in the hospital 15 times by abusing myself to the point of no skin, raging infections, and finally got to using large objects inside my body and a lot of drugs, cocaine, marijuana, speed, amphetamine, because under those drugs I could withstand more and more pain. And to me the pain was pleasure. Unfortunately, with that many drugs in my system, I couldn't tell the difference between pleasure, pain, and hurting my body, doing physical damage. And so I ended up doing great physical damage to my body. Did you ever really get hurt? Yes. How serious? I hurt myself seriously enough internally that I had to have abdominal surgery. They had to go in and resection my colon and put a colostomy bag on me. I am cut from stem to stern. They had to make a 15-inch incision, three inches deep, and go in and actually do abdominal surgery to repair the damage I had did to myself. I burst my colon. How crazy were you? While I'm in the hospital recovering from that, I am masturbating in the hospital 
takes three months to heal abdominal surgery. Then you get to wait three months, and then they open you up again to take the colostomy bag off if they can. All during this time, I'm still doing the same thing. I have four abdominal surgeries. I'll speed up the story. The very last one, here's how I ended up. You say, how was it? Well, after a lifetime of men, women, and masturbation, here's the end of the, the very end of the story. Imagine a little motel room, that the kind that you pay $20 for. Oh, I see many people nodding their head. <laughs> I'm sorry, I forgot where I was. Yes, you do imagine, you know. And you, we remember. And thank you, God, for letting us remember. Thank you. I don't want to forget. I want to remember because I never want to go there again. I had enough. That last day, that last day, as I started out for work, and I went to a seminar in a big hotel like this one. It was a seminar on communications and leadership training, and I had paid for it, and I went and checked in. That was my cover, because I had something good to do today. I went and checked in, paid my money, signed the register, and walked out, went to the bookstore, got $100 worth of assorted novelties. When the seventh step tradition comes around, I never forget the amount of money I used to spend on my hobby. I used to put a dollar in. I reach for fives and tens now. I can't begin to help the sexaholics as much as I spent on my hobby. Hmm, what a fortune. And I, I bought maybe a hundred dollars worth of assorted pornography and dildos and uh, stopped and saw my druggist <laughs> and got my drugs. I went to the little motel room. I stayed there for five hours. At the end of that time, bleeding profusely and knowing I had done it again, I called 911 for the ambulance to come and pick me up before I bled to death. And while I'm waiting for the ambulance, decided if I could act out one more time before the ambulance got there, everything would be okay. And I carried God into my insanity, because under my drug-induced insanity, I would always think that this is what God wanted me to do. And I was doing this with God. That's how insane I was. I mistook, I mistook evil for good. I mistook the lowest level of earth for heaven. And I thought, if I die before they get here, it's okay. I just want to do this one more time, even if I die. Even if I die. That time in the hospital, coming out of surgery, they said, you, you need to see the psychiatrist. I said, why? Four times you've been in here for abdominal surgery for putting things in your body. In the last two years, 
we think you need to see the psychiatrist. Psychiatrist talked to me for the 50 minutes. And at the end, he said, I can't take you as a patient. I was highly indignant. Why not? He said, you've been doing this for since you're 10 years old and you're now 59. You've been doing this for 49 years and there's nothing I can do for you. We could, we, you could lay down on the couch and talk about your mom and dad for the next five years. And I have no idea of, of what to do with a guy like you. He says, I, I, I would be cheating you. I would be wasting my time and yours. There's nothing the medical profession can do for you. You need S.A. You have a sexual addiction. And I said, you're crazy. And he said, no, you're crazy. Well, I've been married 46 years. My wife has stayed with me, being the wonderful, wonderful codependent she is. The wonderful enabler she is. And I dearly love her. And she's, and she's not in program. She's not messing on. She encourages me to go. She always reminds me of my meeting. She's a rock-solid person and my best friend. And I love her dearly. Thank you, God, <laughs> for my wife. And she drove me to my first SA meeting because I was still under morphine. I'd just been out of the operating room for a couple of days. The hospital let me go, but they, they give you a little you know, painkiller to take with you because I've got one of these 15-inch incisions that is not sewn up. When they cut you open, they call it dirty surgery. They cut you open, they repair the damage, and then they have to pack you with cotton or gauze and every day you have to take that out three times a day and change the dressing. I've changed that dressing 270 times. And my wife, who is a registered nurse, laughs when she changes it. <laughs> and she rips it out and she repacks it. And she said, okay, let's go to SA. And took me to SA and I went to a meeting, uh, still pretty drugged up out of the hospital, packed in bandages, bathrobe on and everything, uh, pajamas and slippers, and went to the SA meeting. And uh, my wife takes me in, and here we meet a gentleman named Roy Kay. First meeting, uh, Roy and Peter and Alan. You know, I don't know if you guys know this. Alan was master of ceremonies. And uh, hi, and uh, they say, what brought you here? People shaking their heads say, you need, yes, you need this. You need to come in here. And my wife sat and waited outside for the meeting. And um, I took a sponsor. I gave my first step six weeks later. In the first year of the program, I went through all 12 steps. I have never let go. I have never let go of this program. You mean there hasn't been a day when you almost slipped? Absolutely, I've almost slipped. Have you ever looked at pornography in those last five years? Yes. At the two and a half year mark, I got on the Internet 
and looked at pornography for about three weeks. Did you masturbate? No. Did you reset your sobriety because you were looking at pornography? No, I said I didn't masturbate, so I didn't reset it. Should you? Yeah, I probably should have. Did your sponsor get angry with you? Yes. Are you dumb? Yes. <laughs> you want to reset your sobriety? I don't really care. I don't really care, guys. I don't want to let go of God's hand. I don't want to stop going to meetings. Those meetings where I really didn't want to go because they were dumb and I'm too smart to be there. I look forward to these meetings. This conference, why would I want to go and talk to 300 perverts? What am I going to learn? I mean, and this year, what a joy it is to be at this conference. What a wonderful thing it is to hear the stories of men and women who are getting recovery. I learn every meeting I go to. I learn at these conferences every time. The miracle of recovery for me, I have not masturbated in five years and three months. After a lifetime, I let my best friend go. God bless my best friend. I'm going to let that go. Are you cured? No. Is it one day at a time still? Absolutely. It's one day at a time. Sometimes it's a half a day. And I find my head turning and think, what are you looking at? How are we doing? It's time. Well, I'll bring it. I'll. Sylvia is here, and I'd like to hear her share. I'm sure she would like to. I hope. Life is much different. The miracle of reality for me is I am in the process of losing my resentment towards everything. I have forgiven my mother, my father, my friends, my bosses, all those dumb people that I hate. I now find something to love in every one of them. I don't necessarily like some people, but I do love them. I don't want to be around them, but if they needed my help, I'd help them in a minute. I've given up being angry. You mean you don't get angry? Of course not. Of course I get angry. But I get angry for three minutes, see my part in it, and immediately return to serenity and make amends if I've said anything dumb. Are you judgmental? Do you still look out there and say that's good and that's bad? Sure I do. But then I say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Accept it like it is. And then discover whether you like it or not. I don't have to like everything, but I've learned to accept everything. Instead of being angry, I'm disappointed sometimes, but that's different than being angry. I'm losing my fear. My fear of death? Gone by the wayside. My fear of being found out? I share with you everything I do. And there's nothing I do now that I'm not afraid for you to find out. The miracle of recovery is losing anger, losing resentment, losing fear, gradually seeing them turn 
into forgiveness, serenity, and courage. My hardest problem in recovery is losing my ego and finding humility. I haven't done that yet, and it still bothers me. I'm still sad, and I don't know what to do about it. Yes, I do. Keep coming back. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sylvia, and I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. My sobriety date's May 10th, 1983, and for that I am never sufficiently grateful. I really appreciate being invited to share on the topic of of um, recovery and joy, joy and recovery, whatever it is. But it's it's a wonderful topic because I came to SA in the first uh, year I was here. It was extremely painful. I think most everybody here knows the pain of that first year, and it was. It was devastating. I can't even remember a lot of it because I think I just kind of blacked out during that year. I got here because um, I liked men a lot. And um, when I went to a uh, education series on drug, ad- on alcohol addiction, I watched them do that education and I thought, well, that's me, except it's men that I'm addicted Well, I went through that education because um, I've had problems with the daughter and um, we uh, needed some help. And we proceeded to do work at this counseling for intervention and we went to uh, therapy and treatment and all the whole bit uh, with me telling everybody all the time that I was addicted to men. You see, I could remember some of the things that they talked about on the cycle and I can remember that... Um, I would be waiting for a phone call from a boyfriend, and if he didn't call me, I'm a hairstylist, and I would start going, back combing that head of hair, I mean, you know, just really vicious and mean with it. And then he'd call, and I'd just mellow out, and I'd be happy as I could be. And then I'd come time to go meet this person, and if I was busy, boy, I'd rush that person out, of the, out, and I'd get in my car, and I'd dash off, and then I was okay. And then I'd come back, and I'd be fine. And then I'd start in feeling really guilty and ashamed and and um, uh, go through that pain. And then the next thing I'd know, somebody would call again or I would start expecting them to call again and I would go through it all over again. I'd swear I was never going to do it again. No way. I told people so many times I wasn't going to do it again that they just waited a week and they'd call back because they knew I'd changed my mind. And I did. And that went on. Um for for many many years i it's it started after i'd gotten married i don't um my first sexual partner was my husband and i ended up pregnant and getting married and um i did uh, i started the flirting and the um flirtatious attitudes to me i got high on the flirting a long time before i ever started acting out with the uh, actual sex behavior i wanted to be lusted after that part of our sobriety, of our um, problem statement is me all over. I wanted to be lusted after. And I worked at it really hard. Um, I won't give you a lot of my background on the story, but I will tell you that when I got here, uh, there was active alcoholism in my home. Um, I was ready to hire somebody to kill my husband. 
and uh, I had a, a boyfriend I thought might be in the mafia, and I thought he probably could find me somebody. I was saving my money. I ended up using that money to go to treatment. So he's still alive, and I'm not in jail. And that's a miracle. That's one of the big miracles of this program. Uh, next was that I was raised in a, I, I'm, I'm a preacher's daughter. I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised to not do these things. And um, I just couldn't help it. You know, I needed the attention. The lust for that attention just grew and grew and grew. I related to uh, David and Jean Lott in the fantasy. All the time I was growing up, my fantasy was that I was Dell Evans. And Roy Rogers was going to come along and we were going to ride off into the sunset being happy and and uh, have a great time, you know, in life. I can remember also part of my fantasy in my younger years was that um, I would... Um, live somewhere and I'd have a boyfriend and we would be doing all these good things for people but but he would be uh, somebody special and I'd always have this uh, fantastic dream of, of the two of us uh, doing wonderful spiritual things together and um, the life that I chose ended up not being very spiritual for a long time. I stayed active throughout uh, most of my um adult life as in my church, but you know, it never cured me. I would pray and I'd ask for God to help me and I'd swear I wasn't going to go see this guy and I'd I'd go out in the backyard and I'd scream and yell at God and I would be really mad because he didn't stop me and I would go and meet somebody again. And um, so in Whenever I came here and I and I saw the cycle of addiction, that to me was my beginning and my first step because I could see my powerlessness in that uh, addiction cycle. I could see that I had no control over that. I also knew that there was a power greater than me because I'd been believing in it for a long time. But I also knew that I'd tried that power and it hadn't helped. I mean, I had I had asked God many, many, many times to help me, and it hadn't worked. I mean, nothing worked for me. So. I started uh, going to some meetings. I went to an Al-Anon meeting. And um, I told them that I was there for a chemically dependent daughter. They told me I was in the wrong place. I got mad and cussed and said I'd never go back again. And um, went to my therapist. She said she wouldn't work with me if I didn't go back. So I went back. And then we, I ended up in treatment, and by the time I got out of my treatment program, I needed those meetings. I needed them. I mean, I felt that's the only time that I could feel good. But I'm like David. You know, my sponsor told me I only had to go. I said, one of the things that I heard in that first meeting was that these people went, even though they weren't married to the alcoholic anymore, or the alcoholic was dead, or whatever. They were still in those meetings. And I told my husband, I said, you think I'm going to go to those meetings for the rest of my life for you? You're crazy. I don't like them. They're horrible. Well, I don't have to go to the meetings anymore either. I go because I want to. And they're wonderful. I mean, I go there because that's where I get my spiritual joy and my spiritual life and my spiritual awakening from you people. I still go to my church, very active in my church, but I do not get from my church what I get from you people in this room, sharing with me 
and and letting me see myself as I truly am because somehow or another in church I cannot be truly me. And I I think that's a shame that I can't be, but that's that's the way it is. Here I can be truly me. And so I come because I want to. This program has given me so many things I could not even begin to tell you. Uh, I'm still married to my husband. He's not dead. He's wonderful. He's a he's a great guy. Everybody knows him around here, and there's several people in here that do know him. And he really is a nice guy. But he's also sober today. And that's that's pretty nice. We have an agreement with each other, and that is that if he drinks again, he either goes to treatment or I leave. And if I act out again, I either go to treatment or he leaves and start working a program again. We will not either one live in um, that addiction again. It's much too painful, and it's not necessary. Working the steps has been what has saved my life. Without working those steps, I couldn't, I couldn't be here. I continue to work those steps. The net, one of the other miracles of this life is that my daughter is sober. Um, my granddaughter and my daughter are in Las Vegas right now. They had a gymnastics meet yesterday, and it wasn't one of my granddaughter's best ones, but she'll do better next time. She came in, I think, sixth all around in her in her area. But um, she's a good gymnast. I have three wonderful granddaughters that I wouldn't have without the, without the 12 steps and the programs that we have. I would not have those girls. Um, the relationship with that daughter is good. The relationship with uh, my ch- grandchildren are good. And the relationship with my son-in-law is good. I, uh, I, I stepped over some boundaries, and uh, he called me on them because he works a good program. And I had to take a look at that, and that was painful. And I've had to back off. But you know what? With these steps in this program, we still get along. And um, my son is married to a, a lady now, and they don't work a program. And so there's some problems there. And and I was telling my son-in-law at Christmas, I said, I am so grateful that we can that we can do differently. And uh, he said, it's the program. And it is. It's the program. We have a... a uh, the key to relationships with this program, and that's one of the one of the gifts of it. The other one is that one day I was on an airplane, and I had been invited to go speak to somebody, one of the groups. Um, I think it might have been maybe St. St. Mary's or anyway, it was in Oregon, I think, one of their retreats. And I was thinking, now isn't this something? I had a boyfriend, and I couldn't break up with him, and they're paying me to come and tell him how I did that. And I didn't even do that. I mean, I'm getting I'm getting my expenses paid, go on this trip, meet these wonderful people, to tell them how I did it. Well, I didn't do it. I did it with, I, I only used tools. And the tools of the program are the steps, the meetings, the steps, the meetings, the people, and the sharing. And that's what has given me that wonderful gift. I've been able to do that many times. I've gone uh, to England and uh, went to Korea, and I've gone to lots of different places with this program and with my other program. And uh, I'm a person who has many addictions, like the gentleman last night, and that is the codependency addiction with my children and my family. And then there is the food addiction, etc. 
So um, it it requires working it a lot. My um, I, I did three fourth steps in one year because I went through the treatment program and I did a first step. I mean a fourth step. I did a I got into OA. I did a fourth step, and three months later I got into SA and I did a fourth step. So I mean it's like I had to keep doing these steps in order to uh, deal with the different addictions that I had, and I continued to do those steps in my daily life and work on my spiritual program in, in regard to that. I am uh, very grateful today that I am able to be here. Service is another place that I have been really grateful and, and blessed to be able to do. Without service, I don't think I would be sober. And I really encourage all of you to to find some way of be a service to your areas, your groups, everywhere, uh, anywhere you can go, because that's where your blessings come. I come to these conferences and I see familiar faces that I have seen before, and it's a great joy. It's a great joy. Um, there are times when it's extremely sad, and that was yesterday when I learned of my friend Lloyd, and that was a very sad thing for me. But uh, when I see some of you back again and see David so joyous and and uh, Jack and other members of my uh, of my group so joyous, and I come here and I see some other people that I know here that are are uh, joyous today and have been a part of my recovery, you people are wonderful, and I, I I can't tell you how much you have blessed me. And I cannot tell you how good recovery is if you just work the steps, go to meetings, talk to people, work the steps, go to meetings, use your sponsor, and keep coming back. I love you all. Thank you. I'm Dave. I'm sexaholic. Um, last night the speaker was talking about, uh, uh, or yesterday talking about the glass and, and grumbling about the glass is, uh, you know, it's the wrong color and it's the it's chipped and it's not even half full and um, and today um, I'm at a point of gratitude where I'm just happy I have a glass. And, uh, you know, that glass can hold my program, but I'm, I'm happy I have a glass. Uh, for most of my life, I would, uh, I would bargain with God and I'd say, listen, we've got three choices and I really want this choice right here. And he'd say, are you sure? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, I really want this one. And sometimes he'd give me that choice. And it usually didn't work out. And when I found this program, and when I discovered that I could get up in the morning and say, okay, God, what do you want for me? Then he said, oh, honey, I'm so glad you asked. He says, you know, that time when you said you had three choices and I gave you one of those choices? He says, you didn't know it, but you had 673 choices. Now, he's giving me the best of those 673 choices. And we can all have that miracle of recovery. We can all have our lives changed. If we go to meetings, don't act out. Go to meetings, work the steps, don't act out. Get a sponsor, 
Go to meetings. Don't act out. So we're glad you're here. Uh, let's close with, um, uh, let's see, it's all the time we have for sharing. Anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participants. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. This is an anonymous program, so please keep the name and uh, number of anyone you meet or learn about at SA or SNN to yourself. What we say here, let it stay here. After a moment of silent meditation, will you join me in closing with the uh, serenity prayer? I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.